In Jerusalem, A.D. 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. Out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 hearts were transformed. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity and garnered praise. Out of joy, the gospel creates community. Peter and John then continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. Yet inside and outside forces threatened the unity of the church, including racial tension, a couple who held back money from the church body, and the Hellenists accusing the Hebrews of neglecting widows. But still, the church continued to multiply. In AD 31, Stephen was arrested for performing miracles and speaking truth. Standing before the council, he gave a powerful sermon connecting the Old Testament to Jesus and what he accomplished. Stephen rebuked the people for their hard hearts and refusal to acknowledge Jesus. Enraged, the people stoned Stephen, making him the first Christian martyr. In every day and age, the church faces both persecution and praise. Christians will always be misunderstood, misrepresented, maligned. But we must fight for and pray for unity to flourish within the church. Whether evangelizing to the lost, whether home groups creating new groups, whether campuses becoming autonomous churches, all multiplication comes at a cost. But we continue to move forward. Out of joy, the church multiplies. Pivotal moments. They're found in our personal lives. They're found in our nation's history. Even in the history of our church, there's those pivotal moments. You look at the history of the world and you can identify pivotal moments. Bailey Allen, my stepson, will be in Germany by 4 a.m. Eastern tomorrow morning where he'll be stationed in the Air Force for two years. It's a pivotal moment for Bailey because this moment will change the rest of his life in significant ways. And just in case anybody was wondering, it'll change his mama's life in significant ways, which if anybody was wondering, will change my life in significant ways. So this is really all about me. Will y'all pray for me? (laughs) They're at the airport right now, but she's coming home tonight. Bless her heart. It's been a somber weekend. December the 7th, 1941. Anybody know the date? I know it particularly well. Robert Cox and Elma Abernathy. You didn't think that's where we were going, did you? Robert Cox and Elma Abernathy go to their preacher's house with two friends and get married. I guess that's the way they did it back then. No big shindig about a wedding. They just got a couple witnesses, went and got married. They, as you can imagine, are greatly excited and overjoyed. They go home to tell their family that they got married, and they walk in the door, and they're greeted with the news as the family's gathered around the radio. The Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. Their marriage forever changed the direction and shape of my grandparents' lives, including a whole big clan of us now. 
out of their one daughter. And Pearl Harbor brought the U.S. into World War II, including my grandpa, Robert M. Cox, as a foot soldier in the army fighting in Germany. Pivotal moments are hinges on which the doors of history swing and open into new chapters of life before us, right? We're in the middle of a study of the book of Acts entitled, Jesus Gospel Gathering for Gospel Going. We've summarized the the 28-chapter book of Acts with those words. What is this book about? It's about Jesus' gospel gathering. That is his church. That is us, the body of Christ. Jesus, we're owned by him, gathered around the gospel. The people that follow Jesus gathered around the message about his saving work, his saving life, death, and resurrection. Jesus' gospel gathering. Why do we gather? For gospel going. We gather around the gospel to then be encouraged and strengthened together and in one another's uh, encouragement and in the love of Christ to go with the gospel even to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The early ecclesia gathered around the historical events of the life, death, and particularly, as we see it even preached over and over and over, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The resurrection of Jesus was itself the ultimate pivotal moment in all of history. Amen? For without the resurrection, there would be no Savior, no gospel, no ecclesia. Just a forgotten tale of some crazy religious folks who followed a religious revolutionary quack who ended up dead and buried. But Jesus rose from the dead, and he lives in power. The scriptures tell us today he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, in our text for this morning, the early church is in a pivotal moment. You've heard the text read. We'll look back at it as we go through this morning. But I want to talk to you today about a sovereign scattering for gospel joy in Acts chapter 1, or 8, verses 1 through 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. There we see a sovereign scattering for gospel joy. Here's the take-home truth. God governs even persecution of his church to spread gospel joy to the nations. What's going on in Acts 8, 1 through 8? The story you've heard read. It's a sovereign scattering for the purpose of gospel joy. God is governing even the persecution of his church to spread gospel joy to the nations. So let me, let me show you this under two different truths. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, notice persecution of Jesus' ecclesia advances its mission. That's counterintuitive to the way we think, is it not? Who just automatically, when you're opposed, you think that's a good thing? Yeah, I mean, nobody. That's not our reflex. When we're opposed, there's a problem, right? Those two things just go together. But, but see, what the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, does for us is it reprograms our American minds, and it lets us know that as followers of Jesus, when we are opposed, nothing's wrong. 
When we are opposed, everything, in fact, is right. And what we see in this text is persecution of Jesus' ecclesia advances its mission. Listen to the verses again. Saul and Saul approved of his execution. Stephen had, was dying in that moment. And Saul, who would later become Paul, is there as the ringleader of the stoning. And he approved of the execution. And there arose on that day, the day, the day Stephen died from stoning, the day his bloody body lay there because of rocks thrown at it by people who hated the notion of, of Jesus being the Messiah, that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. And they were all, all of the believers, all of the Christ followers, we, we, we said just rough calculations, we don't know for sure, but rough calculations including you know, the, the, the women that had believed, sometimes we're told that it's just a general number. Sometimes we're told it was the men only as we come up to this point in the book of Acts. We, we could guess conservatively 15, probably 15,000 people at this point. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, the 11 and Matthias, who replaced Judas stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Just two quick points here, just kind of commentary points. We're, this, 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 we're just going to mention this and then we won't come back to it. It's not insignificant to see in verse 1 that the first time the gospel leaves Jerusalem, it's carried by just normal, ordinary church members and some deacons. The apostles are not involved the first time the gospel goes out from the mother church at Jerusalem, the first gathering of Jesus' followers. It's carried not by the apostles. That's what Luke's underscoring. Everybody else was scattered except the apostles. What's going to be told now in in the narrative going forward in chapter 8 is about normal everyday folks, not apostles, with the exception of Paul, who was an apostle out of the ordinary way. We'll talk about that when we get to him. Second thing I want you to notice, even Stephen's burial in verse 2 there was used by the church as a witness. You see, folks convicted of blasphemy like Stephen was and thus stoned to death were not given an honorable burial. But these men, these devout men, these Christ followers, by giving Stephen a proper burial were actually declaring their conviction that of the truth of the gospel and saying that they did believe that Stephen, they did not believe that Stephen had committed blasphemy, but rather had proclaimed the only life-giving truth of the gospel. And so even as they buried him properly, they were saying to the world, y'all got it all wrong. He was not a blasphemer. He was an honorable man who had the truth, and and the rest of you are out to lunch. Verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church... And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What I want you to see in these four verses is that persecution of Jesus' ecclesia advances its mission. We already mentioned it, but this is a pivotal moment for the mission 
of the ecclesia. Up to this point, think about it, up to this point, the opposition to the church had, had, had consisted of rebukes from the religious leaders, verbal rebukes, don't preach Jesus, two overnight imprisonments that we're aware of, and some, relatively speaking, minor physical punishment. I mean, more than you and I have ever endured. There were some beatings, but they weren't like probably on the verge of death beatings. They were, they were, they were I mean, they were beatings. So. But compared to Stephen's stoning, they were relatively minor. But it just got real in the Stephen stoning. Uh, Stephen stoning of... Ugh, a lot of STs in there, isn't there? It just got real on the stoning of Stephen, didn't it? The more intense persecution would be, this more intense persecution, would now be the norm worldwide for the next 300 years of church history. It started that day. A great persecution arose. And for the next 300 years, though, it would, it, would, it would go up and down in intensity. It continued. That was the norm. That was what it meant to be a Christian. You were going to be beaten. You were going to be ostracized. You were perhaps going to die a martyr's death. That sort of life and death is what came to be expected by those choosing to follow after Jesus. Period. There's no buts or other circumstances in, in which people follow Christ. No, that was, that was the world into which you stepped. If you said, I want to follow Jesus, you fell right in line behind Stephen. And today, the persecution, persecution rages around the world with the last century being filled with more Jesus followers martyred than all who died in those first three centuries combined. And it's exactly as Jesus said it would be. You see, we hear this stuff and we're surprised because we don't live there. But when this stuff began to happen to Stephen and the early church, they weren't surprised because they could still hear the words of Jesus ringing in their ears in Luke 21, verses 10 to 19. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Don't miss what Jesus says next in verse 13. This verse makes it clear that all of this is part of our Father's plan and part of the way we will fulfill His mission. Verse 13 says, This, what? This being persecuted, having hands laid on you in an aggressive way, delivering, being delivered up to prison, being brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Jesus says in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Are y'all tracking? Jesus said before all these crazy natural signs happen, you're going to be persecuted. And here's what I want you to know about your persecution. That is the opportunity for your witness. 
The divine design in the persecuted church is the opportunity for the church to tell people about Jesus in the midst of their suffering. And so Jesus goes on, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Don't try to figure out how you're going to witness for Jesus in the middle of persecution. Verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Who does that sound like? We all here last Sunday. The text in, in, in Acts chapter 7 says that they, could not, they couldn't handle Stephen's wisdom. They, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't oppose the wisdom with which he spoke in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus made right here. He did it for Stephen, he'll do it for you. Hey, if he can do it for a deacon, he can do it for you. You will be delivered up by even parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, listen to this, they will put to death Stephen, number one. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus said. You want to follow me? That's what it's about right here. But then he says this. Okay, make sure, I'm just making sure you're listening. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 18 but not a hair of your head will perish. I'm scratching my bald head at this point. By your endurance, verse 19, I'm still scratching, you will gain your lives. Okay, maybe I, maybe I missed something. Verse 16, the second part says, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But then verse 18 says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Which is it? I, I don't understand. You're going to die, you're not going to die. You're going to die, you're, you're not going to perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. So are they dying or not? Well, I mean, let's just, let's just go to history. Acts chapter 7, did Stephen die or not? That stoning really killed him. Is everybody clear that was historically, I mean, it was historical death. His head got bashed in, his heart quit beating, he died. And yet Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. Which is it? <laughs> well, well, folks, it's both. Because here's the thing. When you're one of Jesus' followers, what did Jesus say in another place? They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. If that's what he said in another place, I think that's what he means here. They can kill you physically, and some of you will Physically, Jesus means die. Stephen died, but guess what? God took him home. Remember, he saw Jesus. Jesus stood up off the throne and says, Come on, come on, son. Father, he's mine. Let's, we, it, today, today's the day we're bringing him home. For your glory, Father, we're bringing him home. For my glory, for the furtherance of the gospel, we're bringing him home today. And home he went. Not a hair of his head perished. His soul's safe for eternity. He's in the arms of Jesus forever. His earthly tent died but he'll live forever in his heavenly tent with the Father. Persecution, you see, advances the mission of Jesus' ecclesia. In fact, our Father is sovereignly moving the course of history to make sure the gospel spreads throughout the earth and the persecution of Jesus' ecclesia is part of the way he has designed that we accomplish our mission of making disciples of all nations. Did you understand that before today? Did you understand that before this text? 
when we're opposed as the church, nothing's wrong. God's plan is right on time. And that persecution, that opposition, is your opportunity, Jesus said, for witness. Like none other. It's a pivotal moment for the church. The second thing I want you to see here is the gospel cannot be stopped. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered, what did they do? I mean, put yourself in their place. You just watched, and, or at least heard about, and in great detail, the stoning of Stephen, the brutal death of, of someone who took a stand for Jesus Christ. And they ran you and all your family and all your friends who knew Jesus, they ran thousands of you out of Jerusalem. And so they spread out in every direction. They, just, they, they go out into Judea and Samaria. What would you do as you went? I mean, on a human level, what makes sense is to go find a cave somewhere and get in it to make sure they didn't stone you and yours, right? Get mom and all the kids and get in a cave somewhere to be safe. I mean, that's the only responsible thing to do, right, guys? Y'all tracking? <laughs> but verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Are we clear on what got Stephen killed? We looked at it last Sunday night at our Bible study at 6 o'clock. We, we went through Stephen's sermon. Stephen just goes back to the Old Testament and preaches the Old Testament. And basically says, look, from the beginning, it's been about Jesus. From the beginning, God's people have rejected him. And here's the deal. You're no different. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart. You're rejecting him too. You crucified him. You crucified the Messiah. He was the son of the living God. And the text says they gnashed teeth at him, ran at him, and killed him. Why did he die? He died for the preaching of the word of God. And so this scattered bunch, they say, you know what we've got to do? We've got to go preach the word of God. We've got to go do the death-producing the death behavior. We've got to live out the death-producing behavior that Stephen lived out. We've got to get it, go get in on the action that got Stephen killed. we got to make sure we sound like Stephen, that we take the word of God and proclaim it to the world. The gospel cannot be stopped. For you see, those in whom Christ dwells by his Holy Spirit will in fact prove their love to him by their obedience to him and they'll take the message, no matter what the cost, to the nations. To their neighbors and to the nations. John Piper says, if you see things with the eyes of God, the master strategist who cannot lose because he's omnipotent, what you see in every setback is the positioning for a greater advance and a greater display of his wisdom and power and love. And this pivotal moment of Stephen's stoning propelled the mission of Jesus' ecclesia into its next phase. They were scattered by the great persecution. And that brings us back to Acts 1, verse 8, which says, Jesus speaking before he ascends to heaven to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Stop for a second. That's where we've been up till chapter 8, in Jerusalem. 
And they've been doing just that. But we've said that this, this verse, Acts 1-8, is an outline for the book. And what Luke's going to do is unpack this verse. He does that by talking about Pentecost first. Then he talks about the growth of the church in Jerusalem up through chapter 7. Now beginning in chapter 8, he's going to talk about Judea and Samaria for a second. And then finally, in the end, through the ministry of Paul, he's going to talk about the gospel going to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so, so far, we've been right there. All the Ecclesia's witness has been in the city of Jerusalem. And it's been good. It's been spirit-controlled and powerful. When sin came in, God cleansed the church. And there was phenomenal growth. And upwards of fifteen to 20,000 souls trusted Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior. But they've not yet moved out into any of the other areas where Jesus commanded them to go. They were just in Jerusalem. Isn't it amazing? Acts 8, 1 sounds a whole lot like Acts 1, 8, doesn't it? At least in one phrase. Except there, the persecution of the church is seen to be the impetus for the advance of the mission. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, You'll receive power, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, and in, and in Judea. In Acts 8.1, it says there was a great persecution that arose and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Who would have thought in Acts 1.8, standing there watching Jesus rise, and go, uh, rise off the earth and go to heaven, ascend to heaven, who would have thought, who among the disciples would have thought, we are going to end up in Judea and Samaria because they're going to run us out of Jerusalem. None of them! And yet, under the sovereign hand of God, the persecution of the church led to the fulfillment even of the commission Jesus gave. Would the church have begun to move out into these other areas, on their, in the other regions on their own? Without this pivotal impetus moment of Stephen stoning and the, and the great persecution led by Saul of Tarsus, would the church have done that? We don't know. What we can clearly say is that God used persecution to move his church forward with their mission. And according to Jesus' words, we can say that he didn't just use it. It was part of the divine design. Because Jesus said, when you're persecuted, just know, I've already laid it out, set it up, designed it, and and am sending you into it. That is your opportunity for witness. In Acts 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered... This is part of the same group right here that we're reading about in Acts 8. Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. They went beyond Judea and Samaria, even to the early parts and the the closest parts of the ends of the earth, speaking to no one except Jews. Piper again says, the lesson is that comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. Inertia is is that principle of physics that says that that a thing has the tendency, uh, if it's standing still, to continue to stand still, right? Like like all these things for the Lord's Supper. They're not trying to roll off the table right now because they're still. But if I put a ball on the floor and rolled it, it would have the tendency to keep rolling, right? And so Piper is saying all of the ease and comfort, affluence, money, safety, freedom, it causes a tremendous inertia, a standing still where it is for the church. 
You see, the very things we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money in the cause of Christ and His kingdom, all the things we enjoy as the church in America, again and again throughout history produce the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, preoccupation with security. It's a strange principle that goes right to the, no doubt, to the heart of our sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ. The principle that hard times... Things like persecution often produce more personnel, more prayer, more power, more open purses than easy times in the life of every local church and in the kingdom of God. For it is, as Jesus said in Mark 4 in the parable of the souls, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word And it proves unfruitful. It doesn't produce risk-taking behavior in our lives. It doesn't produce sacrificial use of time and money so that the nations may hear. It doesn't produce us seeing persecution as the opportunity for witness and being bold in the moment. In December 1989, the people of Romania overthrew the communist dictatorship and formed their own democratic government. Christians in Romania who had who suffered for who for years had suffered relentless persecution, imprisonment, and execution were suddenly free to practice their faith without fear. Louis Giglio had an opportunity to meet with one of the pastors who lived in Romania both before and after the revolution. He asked him this question: Was it better for the church before or after the revolution? Let me, let me rephrase the question: Was it better for the church in persecution or out of persecution? Well, well, just, let's just stop and let you answer that. What would you say? I mean, if you were the church, you would, you would want the answer to be out of persecution, right? Listen to what he says. Listen to what this pastor says. The pastor said the answer was complicated, but he offered this simple answer. During the time of persecution, Christians in Romania woke up with only one choice to make. Am I with Jesus today or am I with them? The answer to that question took care of the rest of their day. People in the church prayed constantly with their families, especially before leaving the house. They prayed for protection and strength and the courage to face whatever persecution might await them when they stepped outside. Every goodbye was meaningful and tearful, knowing it could very well be your last. Christians had to make a daily decision to follow Jesus and totally depend on him in spite of all the risk, this pastor said. And then he goes on. But after the revolution... The daily choice of whether or not to follow Jesus became less urgent. It was no longer the main focus of their lives. To choose, the choice to choose Jesus was swallowed up in the many decisions of everyday life that they now were free to make and enjoy. And because of that, this pastor who lived through the whole entire time said the church has suffered. You see, persecution of Jesus' ecclesia advances its mission. So, Chad, so what are you saying? Shouldn't we should pray for persecution? No. Are you, are you saying we should, we should want persecution? No. I'm just telling you what history tells us and what Scripture shows us. Persecution of Jesus' ecclesia advances the mission. And your God and Father governs persecution of His church to spread gospel joy to the nations. I'm telling you this so that if it comes, 
you won't think something's wrong. And run. And shut up about Jesus. But you will stand firm. And you will know everything's right on time. In fact, this is Jesus' given opportunity for you to be a witness. You'll understand suffering for what it is. You'll, you'll get persecution for what it is. And I believe we're going to see it in our lifetime. Maybe not to the extent of Stephen Stoning. Maybe not a death. Maybe not even imprisonment. But some sort of opposition when we stand for the truth of Jesus. And I'm talking about an opposition that has teeth. That affects our life. That affects, can I just go ahead and say it? That affects our finances. Because then, then it gets real, right? They mess with your money, they mess with you, right? They, I mean, I mean you, you feel that. Like you start hearing things then, right? You start remembering all the sermons Chad preached about persecution when they get in your wallet. Secondly, the go- and this is, this is a much shorter point, gospel persecution in the church yields gospel joy among the nations. We see it in verses 5 through 8. So let's just kind of walk through. I'm going to make some comments as we go. But Acts 5, 8, 5 through 8. Here's the main point. Gospel persecution in the church yields gospel joy among the nations. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, don't miss how loaded that simple statement is. Philip is what nationality? He's a Jew. Philip, a Jew, went to Samaria to preach. Does, does everybody remember that, 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 that little parable Jesus told about the Good Samaritan? And what a big deal that was. That of all the people that would have helped the Jew who had been beaten and left, left for dead on the side of the road, who stops to help him? One of those half-breed Samaritans. Philip goes to Samaria to preach. He crossed the mother of all racial and ethnic lines and marched in with the story of Jesus and the grace of God for all races on his lips, even Samaritans. A thousand years, these groups had hated one another. A thousand years of mistrust. A thousand years of division between these races was overcome in a moment by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jews wouldn't even touch something a Samaritan had touched. They viewed them as subhuman. Sound familiar? The Jews would go a whole day of walking out of their way to avoid seeing Samaritans and going into their land. And the Samaritans weren't innocent either. They would antagonize the Jews and sometimes attack the Jews who were on their way up to Jerusalem to worship and loaded down with gifts and sacrifices, and they'd rob them. But in spite of it all, Philip reaches out to and embraces the Samaritans with the love and the gospel of Jesus, and the text says they are filled with much joy. Here's, here's the point I'm trying to drive home. The gospel can create a unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust and crosses even the mother of all ethnic and racial lines. That's why, part of why, 
We're going to consider race in the gospel on Wednesday evenings beginning on September the 13th at 6.30 here. Race in the gospel. What, is the, what does the gospel have to say? Well, you're seeing some of it already right here. The coming of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection for people, the text of Scripture and Revelation tells us, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, folks of every skin color and culture, erased all the sinful dividing lines and put every human being on equal footing as sinners in need of a Savior at the foot of Jesus' cross. It's where humanity stands, all of them, all of us. I want to see a more multi-ethnic ecclesia here at EBC, here at East LJ. Why? Because Jesus died for that. For many in our community who are of other races and culture, how will we know when we're really a multicultural church? Man, this just goes from bad to worse. This gets from tough to tougher, right? How will we know when we are a truly multicultural church, it won't just be when there's one or two folks from a different race in the room. It will be when we all feel uncomfortable sometimes. Y'all tracking with me? Y'all all right? Y'all going to get over this one? we got a long way to go in the book of Acts. Don't, don't let me leave you right here. Stay with me. Everyone will feel uncomfortable sometimes because we'll always be doing something a little different than just your culture or mine, right? That will be a sign that we're a truly multicultural church. But we will gladly and joyfully work through that discomfort because our unity in Christ outweighs our cultural differences and at times preferences. Differences are good. By the way, we don't, we don't want to become, I was reading an article this week, we don't want to become color or race blind. We want to become color or race smart. The different cultures from which we come into the body of Christ, we need each other. There are things that other cultures bring to us that, I'm just, I'm just going to say it, hey, hey, white people, you need to learn some things. I need to learn some things from our brothers and sisters that have darker skin. They come from a different part of the world. Not just about life, but about worshiping Jesus. Y'all all right? More on this on Wednesday evenings beginning next month. So there's a preview, and it's pretty clear. Either you want to come to that or like you really don't want to come to that. But anyway, there you go. That's what we're going to talk about. Verse 6. And the crowds, look, look at this. Remember Jerusalem and now see Samaria. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Signs and wonders, this power of God was seen to validate the gospel, not to be the focal point, but to point people to Jesus. So, verse 8 says, there was, listen to this, so there was much joy in that city. I love that last sentence. Philip goes to Samaria, crosses crazy lines, and preaches the gospel. And the end result is there was much joy in that city. The message that got Stephen killed and the whole church run out of Jerusalem, here across racial lines and crazy, awful prejudice, the gospel is welcomed and brings much joy. And what a challenge to us 
as a church. So, so here's the question. Is there much joy in Gilmer County because East LJ Baptist Church is here? Is there? Would anyone miss our gathering if we were gone? Would the joy level in Gilmer County decrease because that group of Christ followers vanished? And so we have to ask more practical questions. Are we connecting with our community in gospel ways that produce joy in LJ? Here, here, here's, we, we need your help. I want your help as pastor. As leadership, we want your help. And here's the question that I, that I pose to you to get that help. Can you help us think of ways that we might practically show the love of Jesus to our community, whether in the schools or, or, or in, in, in the government of our community? Any ideas you have where we, as the church, can bring joy to our community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please see me, see one of our deacons, because we desperately desire to grow in our love and outreach into our community. Another little question for just personal reflection. Could it be that if we would move out of our comfort zones and past our friends and the folks we hang out with that are just like us, that we would find opportunities for the gospel that we've never seen and find that these folks, those folks, actually welcome and embrace and give themselves to Jesus like our people never have and perhaps never will. I got that out of the text. Did you see that? Jerusalem was their people. They ran them out of town. They go to the half-breeds that they hated and and hated them, the Samaritans, and the city is filled with much joy. What would happen if you went there to them? Gospel persecution in the church yields gospel joy among the nations. It's all part of the grand design for the gospel going of Jesus, gospel gathering. And so we can boldly move in and through opposition with the gospel, knowing that God uses us in even greater ways for the joy of the nations during the painful times. God governs even persecution of his church to spread gospel joy to the nations. You see, this was, and we are, a sovereign scattering for the joy of the nations. Let's pray together.